Please. So I think that um, we're going to be engaged in Afghanistan for a long period of time. Annie, my friend, who uh, is somebody who said, now, Dan, there's three buckets of our engagement in Afghanistan. I've stuck with that, and it's a good way that we've got, we have American boots on the ground. We write a big check to the Afghan security forces of about five-ish five billion. And then we do about a billion in foreign aid. That, that's sort of our engagement. And the heat, that the pain point is sort of the American boots on the ground. But if we could kind of reduce that pain point over in conditions based, and then you know, over time, the Afghans, as, the, as they collect more in taxes in a formal economy, you had a growing economy, they've made commitments as part of various donor conferences to say, we're going to try and collect 14, 15% of the formal economy in taxes. It's a very stretched goal. Like if you, that's a, there's a whole world around taxes and development and domestic resource mobilization. That's a very good, that's a stretch goal. But they've committed to that. And they've made, they've actually are like 13 or 13, 13 and a half percent of, of GNP in taxes collected. So it's, they're collecting real money and they're putting real skin in the game. I think we'll hear about this uh, in this conversation. So um, I think all of you, uh, all, all of my friends don't really need any kind of serious introduction. I'm going to ask them each to kind of self-introduce and briefly explain what brings them to the Afghanistan conversation in just a couple of points. And, the, and each of them are going to bring a slightly different perspective on uh, peace and if it comes. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good time for us to be having a conversation about Afghanistan. I make one other point. I'm going to be publishing an article in The Hill in favor of uh, significant support that we should be supporting the elections in Afghanistan, which are in about 10 days' time. They're the, the best way forward now given sort of the, the stalling of the, 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 the peace agreement to support, uh, allow the Afghan people to, to voice their views about what, um, what kind of future they want to have, or at least, and, and have a, a negotiating partner uh, as part of the peace process. So, and they've, they've consistently voted with their feet over the last four elections and risked life and limb, literally, um, to demonstrate that they believe in a, in a democratic future. So, Okay, so enough on, enough, I'll get off my soapbox. So thanks again. Again, Friday afternoon, I'm grateful you all would come. So Annie, remind everybody, in addition <laughs> to having an affiliation here, which I'm very grateful you agreed to do, tell us, uh, how, tell us, tell us about yourself, Annie Forsheimer, and, and what, what, what brings you to, to this conversation, and, and what do you think about the, the topic I've put in front of us? Thank you very much. Um, I am a recently retired foreign service officer and served twice at our embassy in Afghanistan. I was the political counselor during the presidential elections in 2009, and then I served as deputy chief of mission from 2017 to 18 and acting deputy assistant secretary for several months after that. And I also have worked on, uh, within the U.S. State Department on UN peacekeeping and uh, particularly on, in uh, post-conflict environments such as Colombia. Um, to start with the issue of elections, uh, I agree with you completely. They are essential. Uh, we have been working very, very uh, diligently to support the Afghans, but it is their election to run. And over time, the Afghan government and authorities have taken more and more control over the mechanics of running the election. Their security forces are front and center, not ours. Um, I do think it's going to be problematic. There are many, many opportunities for fraud or simple incompetence in uh, some areas. And what the candidates who are not looking so favorable, such as everyone except for President Ghani and 
Chief Executive Abdullah have done is lay groundwork that they will, you know, protest very likely the, the results of the election. So they've been talking about how unfair it's going to be for a long time, which means they're going to, they're, you know, it will lead to some version of a, um, you know, protest that may be active and on the streets or may really be about horse trading, uh, who gets what position of power. Okay. Thank you. And um, Holly, thanks for being here. Sure. How do I pronounce your last name? Kuzmich. Kuzmich, thank you. Thanks. So you all just have produced a report at, um, at the President Bush's uh, uh, library on, on, the, on uh, Afghanistan. So thanks yeah. for being here. Sure. So um, I'm Holly Kuzmich. I'm executive director of the Bush Institute. And, and our engagement in this issue is really around Laura Bush's longstanding support of Afghan women and ensuring we see progress for Afghan women. And so just earlier this week, two of my colleagues, Farhat Papal and Chris Walsh, uh, produced a report highlighting the gains we've seen over the past 18 years for girls and women and in Afghanistan. And their major gains. Right, on education, on healthcare, on uh, civil society participation, in terms of economic participation. We have seen obviously really significant gains, especially in education. We now have three and a half million girls in school in Afghanistan when we had can we just can we just uh, put an underline on that how many girls in school three and a half million girls okay up from school. how many in the year 2000 essentially none. Uh, essentially zero we're gonna go right. with zero so zero to three and a half million girls in school Correct. it's amazing and we have a population in Afghanistan that is very young so 63 percent I believe of the population is under the age of 25 so it's our long-standing interest to ensure that they have a sustainable peace in Afghanistan where girls are able to participate, where we're ensuring um, an employment sector and jobs for these girls. And so that's our involvement in this issue. We still have a lot of work to do to support them in terms of some of these gains. Um, but they've made so much progress in 18 years, there's still a lot to do, and that's part of this long-standing support that, that we seek to provide. Okay, great. Jeffrey, thanks for being here. I'm very Thank grateful. Thank you for inviting us. You're the, you're the president of the Afghan American Chamber of Commerce. Um, you've been working uh, on issues of economic development and economic opportunity to connecting the United States and Afghanistan, seeing Afghanistan as an opportunity. Uh, you really know the issues really well. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I think, you know, uh, from our perspective, uh, we have a lot of our members are Afghan business leaders, men and women, as well as U.S. Uh, businesses that have a strong interest both in Central Asia and in Afghanistan itself. And I think um, their biggest concern right now looking forward from where we're at is they, they will continue to do business. A lot of them have already made the decision to move assets, move their own families to Dubai or other countries, Turkey, India, in order to prevent uh, threats of kidnapping and stuff. But they are planning to continue investments and programs uh, to develop the private sector economy and invest their own capital dollars in Afghan businesses and in the trade and investment area. We're very proud that the first U.S.-based uh, private finance deal for energy in Afghanistan's history was done by an Afghan-American, uh, Chairman Ishan Bayat of Bayat Business Group. Uh, they, are, they have now moved a U.S. GE, I'm sorry, a Siemens, a U.S. turbine 
into Mazar, and it's going to be flipped on any day now. Uh, so there is investment happening. There is change happening on that private sector piece going forward. But their biggest concerns are that we don't make mistakes in how we negotiate uh, a settlement with the Taliban. They feel very strongly that we shouldn't be creating a special class for the Taliban uh, in any post-peace settlement where you would treat a poor Afghan who has been in the country or maybe is an IDP in the country or is a recent refugee returnee from Pakistan, treat them differently than you would treat somebody from the Taliban. They should all be treated the same. The economic opportunities that would come from our assistance package, uh, we broadly speaking, the donor community uh, broadly speaking, uh, should be treated fairly so that they all can have an equal opportunity at vocational training, at new programs that will assist them in having longer-term employment. I think that is their biggest concern. They're worried about uh, getting to a bad agreement and then having a disintegration of the fabric that has held the country together against the Taliban for a while. And I should just reiterate, everybody, uh, there is not a single person that I have met with in Afghanistan from a business side who has not lost family members, had extended family murdered by the Taliban. Ugh. They are very nervous about peace and what comes next. So from, you have to always keep that in the back of your mind that there is under, you know, they're all in favor when you look at the Asia Foundation survey. Everyone is in favor, not everyone, but a vast majority of the country is in favor of some kind of peace. It's what kind of peace that they have, they are most concerned about. So I'll stop there. Jeffrey, let me just stop for a second because I think you raised a really interesting issue. When I, when I visited Columbia more than 10 years ago when I was at aid, a lot of the same kind of issues come up when you talk about a potential peace agreement where you say, okay, well, a lot of people lost family members or kidnapped, uh, et cetera. There's a per highly personal issue, the large number of IDPs, youth unemployment. It, it, I, I sort of struck me as sort of from the New Testament uh, biblical story about the prodigal son, saying, why are we putting this, you know, so why are we putting former combatants at the front of the line is sort of this issue. So one of the dilemmas if we're going to have a peace agreement is potentially you have to, in essence, there has to be some way of putting these folks at the front of the line, even when there's all this, there's this growing population, enormous youth unemployment, large numbers of IDPs. It's a, it's a particularly thorny dilemma in any sort of peace agreement, how you, how you deal with these folks. In Colombia, the way that, and, that, and so in Colombia, which is a different economy, a different society, there, you know, it's much more industrialized and, you know, higher degree of it, but, but there's also some, some things that rhyme that the, the idea of putting a ex-combatant into, a, say, a, 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 an automobile manufacturing factory where the owner had lost a brother, he's like, there's no way I'm putting one of these ex-combatants in my factory or in my plant. Now, I might source from a series of ex-combatants that start a company, I would be willing to source different sorts of flowers I would from an agricultural cooperative that they start, or I'd be willing to um, source uh, if they wanted to create uh, uniforms for my factory, or you know, any number of different sorts of uh, other sorts of things, but we're not, I don't want to have them hired into my, into, so I think there's gonna be these sorts of issues that you're, dealing, you're talking about, I think are gonna be, if we get closer, because it seems like we've taken a step back from a peace agreement, but I think at some point we'll return to them, these are gonna be the sorts of things that we're gonna be, be dealing with. We've had, we've had uh, very detailed discussions with the largest Afghan companies, uh, and it's very interesting you raise this. So uh, from their perspective, many of them are doing business with the Taliban today because they can't get crushed stone from the quarry many times to their cement plant without it paying a toll 
on a road that is maintained under control of the Taliban. That happens every day to almost every business. So the Taliban are integrated. They don't see that as a threat, and in fact, they have found it in many cases helpful because it's maintained the security of the roads, and no IEDs are placed on many of the roads where their trucks are loaded with their product, travertine, marble, and other very expensive shipments. So they are comfortable with the fact that in a piece, there would be an application by potentially by lots of Taliban in various regions to apply for jobs or to receive vocational training. And in their view, they're willing to, to, to do that. They think that is an accepted cost for us as Afghans to bring them in. Now, the kinds of jobs we give them are going to be based on skill and where they are in their vocational training and their ability to learn how we operate as a business, we're not going to do it because they were in charge of some local Taliban uh, cell. That's not the way they see it working, nor would they do it that way. They realize that a lot of their other employees may have problems with this, so they expect to spend significant time training their employees about how the integration has to happen. And I think they're also looking to the U.S to help advise. Uh, they're not big fans of uh, a lot of big U.S. implementers because they feel that they've taken some of their jobs away uh, over time. These are like but, NGOs or international right. development organizations. But they, at the same time, they admit that they don't know how DDR programs implement. So what DDR is disarmament, demobilization, reintegration. And reintegration okay. of combatants. So they're right now looking and speaking to a lot of different uh, people about it. And just one last thing I'll say is we had a group of our members who are Afghan business women who went to Doha and met with the Taliban and they gave a briefing to us uh, and our entire leadership team after their return and we were quite stunned I'll be honest with you because the questions that they were asking these Afghan businesswomen show that they've sent, spent significant time preparing for these uh, meetings and when I was in Kabul a week and a half ago I found out that the Taliban actually have completed two human capital surveys in Helmand and in Kandahar to prepare for the kind of skill development that they will need to work with donor assistance going mm -hmm. forward in a post-peace settlement process. That to me doesn't show somebody who's undertaking negotiations uh, solely for the purpose of getting control of the country, but they actually want to have some kind of economic role going forward that they can explain to their members. Okay. Bill, Bill you've been working on Afghanistan since October of 2001, but you actually had, you know, had other connectivity with Afghanistan before that. Thanks for all you've done. I mean, you have really have toiled in the vineyards on Afghanistan for a long time. I really appreciate you coming over here to CSIS. You're welcome here anytime, and I'm really grateful for all you've done. It's, it's very important work you do at USIP. So, Bill, tell us about, if, you know, when you think about the future of Afghanistan and, and you know, achieving and maintaining peace if it comes, what, you know, what's your take on this? Sure. Thanks. Um, thanks for inviting me. I think this is a really useful forum with different backgrounds. I'm a development economist by background, and on October 7th, I think, was when the U.S. bombing campaign started in 2001 on the Taliban, and October 9th, I was named the World Bank's acting manager for Afghanistan, and it was a scramble. Uh, Battlefield promotion. So, I, so I've seen a lot of, the, uh, of what's happened uh, throughout the reconstruction, post-conflict, during conflict period that's gone on since then. And I, one thing I would really want to emphasize is that uh, at the time, uh, pretty soon after 2002, but even starting then, uh, 
Afghanistan's reconstruction, post-conflict, at that time it was uh, basically a post-conflict situation, and it was uh, called Reconstruction Light, L-I-T-E. And the thing we need to remember with all that's gone on since is that until 2005, maybe 2006, when the NATO surge started, uh, Afghanistan's re reconstruction or uh, development was underfinanced compared to other post-conflict, conflict-affected countries. So one of the first things, if we're looking to the future, is the last thing, what you absolutely don't want to do in a peace uh, context or, or uh, is to just pull the plug on aid, uh, both civilian and, and security. And uh, so that would be one of my first points. Uh, I don't know how much uh, I should get in. Maybe, maybe just a few thoughts about the Afghan economy and then about the government, because uh, I think we need to be realistic and uh, look at the areas of potential, but also be aware of the constraints. I mean, it's a very poor country, Afghanistan. Uh, the Economist, which had an article a few weeks ago on the 100th anniversary of uh, Afghanistan's independence in foreign policy, I objected to the fact that they said Afghanistan became independent. It was previously also independent, but the British controlled their foreign policy. 1919, 100 years ago from uh, uh, August uh, sometime, they, they became uh, independent in foreign policy after the third Afghan war. Uh, this article suggests that b using purchasing power parity per capita income and going back historically, it, in Afghanistan it's lower than it was in 1950. Mm. And so I think uh, this is something we need to keep in mind. It's the poorest country in Asia. Outside of Africa, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, basically, they lost a quarter century following 1978 with the Soviet intervention and everything. Basically, the economy shrank while population was growing during that period. So that's important. It's also a landlocked country. And uh, land, being landlocked is not a good thing, especially if you're in a bad neighborhood when you have issues like Iran, when you have India-Pakistan issues and other issues like that. And it has uh, very mountainous terrain and poor infrastructure. Uh, despite the very massive improvements in education that have been made, it's still well below other countries in the region in its uh, human uh, capital indicators. So what are you going to do? You know, what, what, what kind of economic make model makes sense? And there are a lot of uh, wildly optimistic and uh, unrealistic uh, views, but the, one, the one, one area where they have a comparative advantage is agriculture. And it's sort of ridiculous how much agricultural imports are occurring from nearby countries and farther afield. Basically, it's Afghanistan is an open economy for other countries to dump agriculture goods. Uh, and there are other opportunities too, like cement. They, uh, Afghanistan should be producing its own cement. It's very costly to transfer. And also in the oil and gas, which Jeffrey already mentioned, uh, they, whether they can become self-sufficient may be a question, but they're importing enormous amounts of, of petroleum, oil, and lubricants, and uh, that, that's not necessary. There are some resources domestically. So I could go through all this. The basic point is Af mirroring the high aid, which we talked about, Afghanistan has a huge imbalance of imports versus exports. Basically, about not, imports are about nine to 10 times as large as exports. And as gradually over time aid uh, contracts, that external balance is also going to have to contract. And I, uh, I'm all for expanding exports, but I think there's 
enormous near-term opportunity to uh, substitute for imports. One last point, if I may, on, yeah. on the government. Uh, th this, it, it concerns me that during, you know, during this, somehow in, in, in our genius, the international community manages to, to combine three or four things together, all of which, each one of which by itself would be a major challenge. And I'm talking about the Afghan presidential election, very important. The peace process, even if it's now uh, stalled, stalled uh, it will it return can come to back. It. And, and it's, uh, whatever has happens to it in the future, it has been very much affecting and uh, uh, giving rise to uncertainty uh, in, in over the past year. And then you have the uncertainty about US policy and uh, whether, how long, and in what numbers the US troops will remain. So all these things are coming together at once. And uh, what I think is really unfortunate also is that the Afghan, some of the really strong positive uh, developments, which we always have to remember, uh, Afghanistan has some world-class development programs. People don't know about it. Some of it is the ones that improve human uh, social indicators. The uh, rural development program, uh, community-based, is, is really world-class, and I would argue is a way to pursue integration, because I think the experience has shown just giving individual payments or jobs to ex-combatants uh, can be problematic, whereas if you do a more community-based approach in the rural areas, uh, that, would, that would have better prospects. And they have a national program, which actually is pretty good, or could be a good vehicle for that. But uh, I think you know, during, with all these things going on, there's also a risk that some of these positive achievements by the government uh, may be eroded. And I could get into more detail on that if okay. there are questions. Okay. So, could each of you talk about what you think it's going to, what we're going to need to have a vi if we, we're going to return to a peace conversation. I think this is a temporary pause. We're going to have to, we're going to have, at some point, I hope we get peace. Um, what are we going to need um, to have peace? What, what's what's going to mean to make sure that the peace, that, that we get a viable peace? So let me start with you, Annie. Sure. Um, I do think that, uh, if we return to the talks, we have a choice. If it's still in the same four-part uh, configuration where part of it is the U.S. talking to the Taliban about withdrawal and, and counterterrorism guarantees, and then an intra-Afghan dialogue on a ceasefire and a way forward, if that remains the structure, then we have to double down on the idea that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed because that will give confidence for the intra-Afghan dialogue to have meaning, that we won't have already withdrawn. If we don't make that statement and, and really stick to it, then I think there are other ideas that are starting to bubble up that at this point, the Afghans could also start talking to us about a conditions-based withdrawal. Why not? It's that the, their Afghan, the current Afghan government. The current and the future Afghan government with other stakeholders could talk to us about a withdrawal under their, our bilateral security agreement because that actually would show that they're thinking ahead to a future where there is a, you know, a less uh, prevalent uh, international presence. And I do think that the pan-Afghan talks should talk about that political future, but that the Taliban doesn't actually have to be in the driver's seat in any way about the shape of an international presence. What, what percent, sorry, Annie, what mm -hmm. percentage of the population of Afghanistan support the Taliban? I think it's like 10% or less. This I is a very small minority. It's a very small minority, which means that this government, the future government, should be working as hard as they can 
during this very temporary reprieve, I think, to figure out what the pro-constitutional consensus is in Afghanistan, because it's huge and important. What do people want? They want the Constitution, they want guarantees, the business community wants it, women want it. It is, it is a very strong point of view. And so it should not be subject to the political rivalries which have, in fact, gotten in the way of forming this very strong national consensus. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that the, the, the uh, Taliban were sort of the, the Ku Klux Klan of, of the Pashtuns or something, right? These are a, a minority, a crazy minority, or a, not a minority, I mean, a subset of the Pashtuns that this was, these were, uh, in my view, but it, that this is not a majority view. And so I've always been struck by the, if it's ten, they enjoy 10% support across the whole country, it, it's always struck me that they, they shouldn't be in the driver's seat on all of these things, is, is, is what, I, what I would say. shock you by not echoing colorful uh, we, we, we could go like on, we can use colorful depictions. What, but I, I, what I just wanted to say, though, is that obviously the security uh, landscape of any kind of post-agreement Afghanistan won't be that simple. That there are many spoilers, there are terrorist groups operating there, there are very empowered criminals, just to recall the lessons of Colombia and the Balkans and other places, where the criminals are protecting uh, illicit trafficking networks and they actually have local support, not on an ideological basis, but as a way of making a living. So that, you know, making the government have control of its territory is still going to be a bit of an uphill battle. And that's why um, I think that we should be thinking now about what does the Afghan security, what do the Afghan security forces need to look like the day after they move from some kind of status of fighting the Taliban to the new status of trying to keep peace, allow for commerce, protect the Constitution. What does that look like? And what should the international community do to support that? Okay, thank you. Uh, I would just add, I mean, of course, our, our conversations are always dominated, dominated by issues of security, but I think one of the things that, that we always try and emphasize is that the security component, the economic component, the governance component, they're all so linked together. And so that, we need to remember that, and as these talks continue, we, of course, um, are going to push and say women need to be part of these discussions. Um, we haven't heard much about that. There's a lot of apprehension by Afghan women about what's happening behind closed doors and what's being said about these issues, and is anyone paying attention? And do people remember what it was like 20 years ago um, in terms of not being able to go to school, not being able to leave home without a male escort, not being able to access health care unless you went to a female provider, but there are no female providers to go to, um, and not being able to have a job outside of the home. So. Women are skeptical and worried, and um, and you know th that's why we that's why we continue to raise these issues. Thank you. Jeffrey. So on the viability issue, I'm going to give a little different inflection on it uh, based on my conversations with people out there. So uh, first observation is the Taliban have met with the United States and with other uh, representative organizations from Afghanistan in Doha. And they've had very, everybody that I've talked to that has met with them said they've had very intense and uh, in-depth conversations. These are not shallow, one-inch deep rhetorical conversations. So there has been give and take, and the women especially push them rather hard on what they would agree to in a post-peace uh, society 
and they have dramatically changed their views according to the representatives that they met with. At the same time, uh, the militant arm of the Taliban is undertaking now, since uh, the last two months, uh, huge ground assaults in the major cities of Afghanistan, killing uh, a lot of Afghans. With that, uh, what has been driving that, in my view, from the conversations I've had, is that the Afghan special forces uh, with embedded U.S. teams are, have taken the war to them in an unbelievable way, at a much higher level than we know sitting back here in our beautiful Beltway homes. They have undertaken serious killing of massive amounts of Taliban, and as they should. And uh, they're very successful. The Afghan special forces are widely respected now by the uh, Afghan population. It doesn't transgress so much to the ANA yet, but the ANA has made dramatic improvements, and the Asia Foundation polling shows that. The Afghan National Police are more important in the community-based outlines, but their support still is not uh, where it needs to be to be effective in countering Taliban influence or, or penetration of local communities. So their intent, obviously, with these major attacks is to create a perception of weakness on, uh, by the government, and it's having that impact, frankly, right now. Uh, and there's a lot of questions being raised about whether the government can protect the public in, in the country uh, anymore. And this is after the peace talks have failed, this now is coming up because people now have breathed a sigh of relief that the U.S. was not going to sign a bad deal and leave the country and stick them with a Taliban, uh, uh, maybe a majority uh, Taliban government in some way. Um, the next problem, though, is that the, what the Taliban have not been perceiving is that these massive attacks are actually driving the mass public of Afghans to push them away from what was polling numbers showing that they'd be willing to have a peace deal mm. is pushing them now into a harder area where their feeling is that maybe this is not going to happen and that we just need to, as a country, unify our political alignments and our tribes and undertake a massive uh, assault and, and militant campaign against the Taliban around the country. Now, there is precedent for this. I've come to learn in Washington, talking to a lot of foreign policy experts, the Sri Lankan uh, military assaults against the, it was a 26-year campaign against the Tamils. Oh. It, exact same thing happened where the country and the public got so frustrated, they elected a leader who, who promised to basically create a genocide against the Tamils. Oh and killed over 100,000 people. Oh, no. The families of the Tamils, their extended networks, oh. everyone. They had four failed peace talks, three, I think, ceasefires, and in the end, a political uh, agreement was made when the Tamils conceded, basically, and agreed to join the government without conditions that they had been holding out on. That happened, so in the 90s, I think that agreement was uh, close to finalized or in the early 2000s. So there is a precedent in the region, I think, that in a society that uh, it, it has no hope of actual security, it can drive politically groups together that would never be together in order to seek a really bad but final solution. And that could be where this ends up if peace doesn't happen. I hope not. I'm going to be serving booze after this. After yeah. thank you, Jeffrey, for that. There'll be hard liquor I think I need in the back. Already. Good yes. lord. <laughs> okay, Bill. So, what's it going to take for us to have a viable peace? Well, it's hard to 
I can't even top that, but just to, yeah. to take off on that, I think you know the, the interesting thing is the peak of international uh, casualties was 2010 or 11 in Afghanistan. Uh, basically, in terms of inter U.S. and international casualties, the war is, is quite small, though each casualty, of course, is important. Is but what has happened is 2018 was the peak year of Afghan uh, uh, casualties, all, all kinds, uh, civilian and, and uh, ANSF and uh, Taliban. Uh, it was the highest year since sometime during the Civil War in the early 90s. So, so this, you know, this war has actually heated up, even if U.S. service members are not uh, being affected as much as they were earlier. Uh, I tend to think, uh, and with due respect to Jeffrey, I, I tend to think that uh, uh, a military solution is not going to work by either side. So I, I, and I think I'm afraid that the I'm Afghan government is. I'm not promoting this idea. No, no, it's an idea that's been out but, there uh, now. But it's so. out there. I'm afraid, I, I would think that the, uh, just to be very frank, the Afghan government would be kidding itself if they think they can defeat the Taliban. They have sanctuaries in nearby t countries, and, and actually during the surge period, uh, you know, they, they relied on those sanctuaries, <sighs> and they would rely on them in the future. So, so I, you know, I think the recognition certainly on the U.S. side and I think it should be, and on many Afghan side, is that there's not a, uh, a military solution to this conflict. And that, in a way, is what gives rise to hope to, uh, to, uh, to move toward peace. Uh, I think, and actually, I'm going to take from Jeffrey. I, I think, you know, if you're looking at what's going to help, I mean, you need a, a viable economy as, as one aspect of a sustainable peace. And what really is important is the... Uh, reduction in violence. And so uh, that would mean a ceasefire, either some areas or gradually expanding or nationwide. And I think if the violence reduces and that builds confidence over time, then you, then you have hopes for an economic revival. And, and some of the key areas I, I, I mentioned earlier would be the priorities in my view. I also think this issue of how you uh, it's really, I think, what Jeffrey also said, the kind of peace is going to matter a lot. One thing is, is it going to reduce violence, or is there what one, one of my former colleagues aptly called post-conflict conflict? conflict. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, are there going to be a lot of local violence, which then creates an environment that's not very good for, for education, business activities, and other things? Or is it going to be uh, something a little bit better uh, and nationwide and, and building over time? Uh, and then I think, you know, how you combine the government. I mean, there's a whole bunch of issues uh, which I think are manageable on the economic side, but they do need attention. And frankly, in the last year, uh, this area slipped. And uh, uh, I, I do think you need to, uh, you need to, uh, I mean, you, you actually need a viable government, whether it's a power sharing government of some sort or what kind of government That'll be discussed among Afghans as part of the peace process. But if you, if you leave Afghanistan with a non-functioning government, and I think the Taliban recognized in the 1990s they had a, essentially a non-functioning government in most okay. respects. So, uh, so that would be the area to, to focus on for sustainability of peace, okay, in my view. So Bill, this question for you, okay, for each of you, and then I want to open up because it's a very patient audience. Short answer for, each, for this. So one of the questions that has turned on the peace conversation has been, has the Taliban changed? I'm going to use that as a term. 
have the Taliban changed? So, Annie, have the Taliban changed? Uh, sure, and more important, I think the Afghan people have changed their resilience now compared to the country that the Taliban took over in the 90s is night and day. Okay, okay. Holly? Uh, I hope so, but I think um, the proof will be in the pudding. Okay. And you know, there are still a lot of areas where the Taliban are preventing girls from going to school. So you, you can't call this, you know, yes, yeah. they've changed and every, you know, peace talks should continue and we should trust them, who knows? Okay, Jeffrey? Um, I think some of them have changed and realized that their future is bankrupt without change and that their younger people are the ones, uh, for example, when the ceasefire happened, it was the young Taliban who came into the cities, not the older yeah. ones, to celebrate with their brethren. And eat ice and cream. If we can peel Literally. off that group along with some leadership groups and make them part of government and actually have a stake in society, maybe that would effectively bring in more of them over time, but it would be a long haul, I think. Okay, Bill, have they changed? Uh, I think there's no question that they've changed. It's been 20 years. Uh, or almost 20 we years all since they were since they were uh, uh, in power. And, I don't change. Uh, I, I think uh, you know. I, I think I think it's more complex. And uh, just to give you one example, in the 1990s, the Taliban regime had a pretty somewhat deserved, at least, reputation of not being very corrupt. For one thing, it's it's not that they were angels, but opium was legal, so no no big t uh, corruption premium on that. Uh, just a modest tax. Uh, there was 200 million of international aid, not a whole lot to be corrupt about. It was all humanitarian, and yes, there was some corruption related to food rations and getting jobs in NGOs, but it pales in comparison. And the I think. Uh, all, you know, the many Taliban, let's put it this way, have become more business oriented and involved, as we've talked about, in uh, different kinds of activities. Like the and, fuel uh, mafia. So, mm -hmm. so um, you know, uh, some people have actually expressed to me a, what a, maybe a naive hope that if they, if they come into the government, it'll become less corrupt. <laughs> I get more worried that they'll actually quickly learn. The corruption side okay. of it. And, uh, okay, that's that's hopeful. We are serving hard liquor at the end of this. <laughs> Thank you. All right, I want to hear from my friends. I I need to first hear from my affiliates here at CSIS who keep me honest and have you know are, we've done some really wonderful work together. I want to hear from Ambassador Olson. I want to hear from Ambassador Wayne. I hear from uh, Ambassador Rayful. So can I please let's start with Ambassador Wayne here, and then Ambassador Olson, and then Ambassador Rayful. <laughs> Any comment, comment or question doesn't matter. If we are able to get a process restarted, what do you do with the people who don't accept the process? Okay. What do you do with ISIS? What do you do with breakaway Taliban? What do you do with the drug traffickers who don't want an effective government? That whole cluster. Great, okay. And my friend Ambassador Rayful. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask Bill, because of his long history uh, with the economic development situation there, but anyone else could, could uh, contribute too, what would you see as the main elements of a post-conflict international um, economic development program? You, you mentioned, I think it was the National Solidarity Program or 
community development, whatever. Citizen charter. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's the main that. elements. I don't you know, yeah, yeah. need a long thing, but just yeah, a yeah. summary. That would be very helpful. Thank okay. you. The elevator summary. So Ambassador Olson. And let me just say, these three ambassadors are my friends and colleagues. I'm so grateful for the collaboration. The three of you kept me honest and really helped us to do significant work on Afghanistan and Pakistan. So, Ambassador Olson. And we're all grateful to you, Dan. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, first, let me just offer a comment um, on, on uh, Jeff's analysis about uh, the possibility of uh, violence. Um, look, I mean, geography really counts here, and I agree with Bill entirely. Uh, Sri Lanka was an island. Uh, Afghanistan is not. Uh, the whole reason we haven't been able to defeat the Taliban is because they had safe havens in Pakistan. And so, you know, but the point, I think, is where, where the, what, what Afghans are telling you is right, is that were there to be a withdrawal or an incomplete agreement or a failed agreement, almost certainly the alternative would be a, uh, a resumption of a truly bloody and kaleidoscopic civil war, you know, mm -hmm. with that kind of intent on both sides. Um, but my question is actually for Bill. Um, I, I was very intrigued by your comment about import substitution. I completely agree with that. I mean, I've always felt that that was the only way that Afghanistan could do anything um, in the near term. But it, it does sort of run against the, you know, the economic orthodoxy and the Washington consensus and all kinds of other things. But I wonder if you could spin that out a little bit and what specific sorts of steps you think would need to be taken by the Afghan government to develop internal markets and thanks. So I, I've done, we've done two papers since January. Frankly, at the Annie, it's your fault because you said we needed to be doing more, and I said yes. So we did a great, Ambassador Wayne and I did a paper on look at the gains we've made and why we sure as hell don't want to pull the plug on all these gains, I think, in line with what the yeah. Bush Institute has done. And then Ambassador Olson and I did a paper said, okay, let's, let's rewind the tape and remember how awful and, and horrible um, things were, I was with some, some Pakistani military folks after we did the, the paper, and if you can, you can take a look at our CSI, the two, the, the let's hold the gains, the Ambassador Wayne hold the gains paper, and the Ambassador Olson uh, returned to Mad Max, I mean, I'm dating myself with the, the Mad Max reference, but, but I said to these Pakistani military folks, I said, you've just sent back two million Afghan refugees back from Pakistan into Afghanistan. Is it a win for Pakistan if you get six million refugees when, when you know what hits the fan in Afghanistan? Is that a win for you? I didn't say, anyone said, like, oh yeah, that's a win for Pakistan. No one said that. But that's, what's com that's, that's the kind of things we're talking about if it hits the fan. Mm -hmm. if, if there's a collapse of the state, if there, we return to a civil war, we're looking at not two million people, we're talking about m multiples of that, and we could have boat, boat, Vietnam boat people style, multiples of that, Coming, we could be on, you know, if we could be on the hook for hundreds of thousands of Afghan refugees coming to this country, just in the U.S. So it, it is not so. Getting this right is not an academic exercise or an ivory tower exercise. This is this is for real. So, so thanks, thanks. For that. I, but I, before you guys answer that, I need to recognize my very good friend Matt Murray, who's here, who is been involved with anti-corruption work in Afghanistan for a long period of time. Um, Matt, your, um, your organization um, has gotten a little bit of attention recently, so I think it would be, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to comment and ask a question and just make, maybe perhaps respond to what I'm referring to. And here's the microphone. And um, 
say hello to your, your television, for the television viewers, your name and organization. And, okay, Matt? Well, thank you, Dan. I hope this is the right time to make this. Um, yes, it is. Uh, add this data point to your discussion. And I really don't have a question, but I would like to take the opportunity to say that, as Dan mentioned, um, uh, I work for an organization which was established by donor agreement and the government of Afghanistan in 2010. It's called the Joint Independent Anti-Corruption Monitoring and Evaluation Committee of Afghanistan. I'm privileged to be a, an international commissioner that sits uh, along with other five other commissioners uh, overseeing a secretariat of 40 individuals who, does the hard, who do the hard work of corruption prevention every day using a standard toolkit that has been enhanced and improved uh, because it's being used in Afghanistan and, and now represents global best practices. Being on the prevention side of the business, we don't get a lot of attention because our goal is to narrow the space in which corruption occurs over a period of time. And we don't do investigations, we don't do uh, scandalization, and we, we don't do politicization of the effort. We are always about having a responsible discussion with stakeholders, including government ministries, about how to close the, the vulnerability to corruption gap. And so uh, we have achieved what I would say a transformation over the past two years to becoming a very results-oriented organization. We, we are focused on helping the citizens of Afghanistan get better services. That's our goal. That's, the anti-corruption has a means, it's a means to an end. Um, in any event, in light of that, we were very, very surprised yesterday to see that we were included in Secretary Pompeo's announcement that he was going to be stopping certain funding of other projects in Afghanistan. Um, and if you read that statement closely, you saw that at the end he, he made a statement which was, uh, I think, a, a pretty, um, uh, fair, you know, a fairly stark and ironic statement since he, his goal was to, with this announcement, help hold the standard of anti-corruption high in Afghanistan, um, we found it ironic that he was singling out the MEC as something that should be closed down um, by the end of the year. So um, we're in a bit of a, a recalibration mode today. Um, the work goes on. Um, I spent the morning training, helping to train six individuals who are going out into the region, regions today to do election monitoring and assessment of corruption risk in the elect electoral sector. And so these are brave individuals who are taking their lives in their hands and they continue to do the great work that um, US taxpayers and, and British taxpayers and Danish taxpayers have been paying them to do. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Dan. Okay, so there have been some questions and comments. I'd welcome reflections from the panelists and any you can, can choose. Let me start with you, Annie. Um, I think I'll just look at the security uh, issue most closely and also just echo that I had some very good interactions with the MEC when I was at post. Thank you. Um, I think we have to look at the options that, um, that, that are viable in Afghanistan and that have worked in other post-conflict environments. So it to me seems like you have the security environment right now and you have peace. And what you'll have is something in between those two. And in that case, um, what you want to do is try to address localized problems as quickly as possible before they become too large. Uh, you can use social means, economic means, or security means. And the security means could be military or they could be policing. And um, here and there, uh, there's going to need to be a very robust, somewhat military response, especially with terrorists 
You know, and I think the assaults that we've seen in cities, for example, are more acts of terrorism than acts of war. But we know, and the Afghans are, are very good at knowing what those are. And then sometimes it's an issue of policing. What you have is organized criminal activity. What can you do when you have such empowered criminals who have political friends, who have lots and lots of people whose livelihoods depend on them? You know, you can't go and literally just arrest somebody as if it were an ordinary policing duty. It has to be done uh, very sensitively and uh, with a lot of support from the political and sometimes the international community. So none of it would be easy, but uh, all of it, I think, has some precedent internationally, and there are experts, I think, that should be looking at this right now. Uh, how do you keep a, any kind of a peace, and how do you prevent spoilers from you know, turning an incident into something that could actually derail a bigger process? Okay. So I will just pick up on this economic development point to say that this, I believe this is terribly important and that more needs to be done for a variety of reasons. Number one, we know that poverty, lack of employment breeds extremism. So there's a security component to an economic development strategy that we need to keep in mind. Um, lack of security impedes growth. So there's this connection point there too. What we're not able to see the growth we want to see in the private sector because of all the security mm. issues that are going on. And of course in economic development, I'm an education person, I'm going to say that economic development of course depends on a stronger yeah. education system there too. So you can't leave that out when you talk about the economic mm. development component there. Good. Jeffrey. All right. I'll tackle uh, first the economic platform and then the uh, import substitution real quick. So on the economic platform post-conflict, I think our goal would be to push the regional economic integration much harder than has been done mm -hmm. and try to focus on specific networks and facilitative investment, uh, help lended finance, uh, better risk insurance, and, and much more. One of our gripes is that the U.S. is not good at expeditionary development in conflict states. And since 70, I think the Rob Jenkins from USAID statistic is 78% of our assistance is now going to fragile, failed, or conflict state environments. We are not good. We don't have the right tools for it. We need to be much more aggressive on the implementation side for it. So in a post-conflict, I want to see a really new DFC out there quickly moving to try to figure out ways that they can help to secure investment from the region and from the United States. We'd love to have both. And so those tools need to be a whole focused discussion because they're not right now. On the import substitution, I just have one really interesting, I had a meeting on my last trip with 10 steel mill owners in Afghanistan. And they came to Kabul to meet me to discuss the fact that their iron ore mines have closed because they've been mining, they've been using scrap from the, from the war and now all the scrap is gone. They want to open the iron ore mines uh, to feed their mills but the Taliban has uh, taken a payment scheme from the Iranians to allow the Iranians to dump massive amounts of their wire and steel into the Afghan market and to uh, prevent, they're using some of the proceeds of that to pay the Taliban to keep those mines closed and thus now they're having to lay off these steel mills, some of them are 60, 70 years old in the same family. They're having to lay off longtime employees because they can't get access 
to iron ore, even though Afghanistan has very strong and solid deposits of iron ore near Kabul, in fact, where a lot of these uh, steel mills are. So there's no WTO action by the government. The government's known this now for about five years. They've done letter after letter. They've met with everybody in the palace that they needed to to effectuate change. Nothing has happened, and so now economically they're destitute, and it shouldn't have come to that. The Afghan government should be better representing those steel uh, mills and trying to help them either through an anti-dumping action or some negotiated process. With or, Iran. Or the ANA or other military forces should be stopping the Iranians from getting that steel in. And that's not happening either. So import substitution, yes. I think they're already suffering. And it's not just in steel. This is happening for them in agriculture from Iran and some stuff coming from Pakistan too. I'll leave it to Bill to really get into import yeah, substitution. Yeah, no, no, just so. to take off that. I mean, yeah. that's really exciting. I think it's called DRI, direct reduction iron. So mm -hmm. you can have smaller scale uh, uh, production of, of basic forms of steel, but you know, Afghanistan doesn't need, shouldn't be importing crude steel. Obviously, they're going to import right. vehicles and other things right, that right. Are manufactured with steel. Uh, but so uh, it, it is exciting, and uh, you know, it, it illustrates my concern about the, all this uh, talk about regional connectivity. It's the weakest economy in the region, and I thought it was the only WTO member in the region. Then somebody else pointed out to me, I assume correctly, that Tajikistan is, is also a member of WTO. So Kaz great, the two weakest also. economies in the region are both members of WTO. This is like a trivial which, pursuit uh, question. I'm thinking, is Kazakhstan <laughs> a member of WTO? I think it is. I'm gonna Google, Google this. But yeah, uh, but you're right. It's, it, it, so, so, the, so the problem is when you have regional integration with Afghanistan in a, a very weak position, even if there is peace and, and some progress in that area, how do you manage it? I tend to, to uh, push very hard for the regional energy transfer, both economically, financially, and also I think politically ties together. So the TAPI, CASA 1000, and there are other options. The cost of- What's TAPI, just for, their, uh, for our uh, friends? Sorry, the uh, Turk Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan Pakistan, Pakistan, India pipeline uh, for gas. And these kinds of things make enormous sense because the, the cost of electricity or cost of energy in Central Asia is something on the order of maybe one-fifth or even one-tenth in South Asia, which is short of energy. So this, I would push that because it, all, it both can have benefits for all the countries and also politically pull them together. On the agriculture side, like I said, it's a dumping ground. And, and uh, uh, some, another example which occurred to me when Jeffrey was giving his is cement, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are, uh, I, I, you know, the point is they, they import tons and tons of cement from Pakistan and also from Iran, I think, more recently. And uh, they should be producing it all. And so, again, regional integration on what terms. Uh, I was going to take the economic development first and the import substitution second, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll just go, go on the import substitution quickly and then get back to you. But they're, they're closely related. In effect, the import substitution is part of it. Uh, Basically, you need supply-side measures. I mean, you know, need improvements in Afghan agriculture, need more investments, and the traders and other people. I mean, there's a world-class Afghan company called Ali Kozai, I would argue, and they, they get tea from Sri Lanka, uh, uh, process it with the most advanced equipment in, in Dubai, and sell it. You can even buy it on Amazon, but they especially sell in Central Asia, Afghanistan, and, and areas like that. So, you know, 
they're, they're moving out or they're bypassing. They're willing to invest in Afghanistan, I think, in the right circumstances. And actually, they tried, mm -hmm. but I don't, you know, it's that taken a lot of yeah. time. So, uh, so you need supply side improvements, but you also need to do something about the demand. You know, the, the frozen chickens from Brazil, for example. There are frozen chickens from Brazil and Afghanistan? Uh, there were. I mm -hmm. think they might have dealt with that one, uh, essentially by stopping the chickens from coming from Brazil. And also at the same time, I mean, couldn't you, del you, could have, you could have a poultry industry in Afghanistan yeah, perfectly yeah. well. Yeah. And they used to import eggs too. I get, again, I think there's some progress in some of these areas, but it's so ridiculous. And when I was there, I was based there from 2002 yeah. to 2006, uh, the, the striking thing was imported was drinking water. And so, you know, they okay, got tons of water. Afghan rivers flow into Pakistan. They, they bottle it and the, they get it free from Afghanistan, bottle it and send, send it back. back. And uh, a lot of similar That's stories ridiculous. about cherries and other fruits going to Iran, being processed into jam and being sent back. I mean, so this is like food processing uh, stuff. So I, I think you need to be creative. I, I think it's, uh, you know, everybody's admired Afghanistan for joining the WTO, but, uh, you know, maybe it's too early. I, under the previous arrangement, the GATT, the, uh, uh, there was, I think, somewhat more protections for very low-income countries who could for do more what industry. they wanted. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, look, the point is WTO, the agriculture part of it failed, right? Hmm. It was a Doha negotiation. That failed. So any. WTO member is free to subsidize their agriculture, do anything they want to promote agriculture, exports and stuff. But the one thing that they can't do is have tariffs or import or, yeah. or, or restrictions on imports of agricultural goods. So Afghanistan is in this dilemma. The last thing we'd want them to do is to do a fiscal subsidy regime for agriculture. They're already deep enough in the hole fiscally that that would make absolutely no sense. So the only instrument they have left is one that WTO restricts. And so I think you need creative solutions. Uh, some of the ones, I mean, uh, I, I need to nail down the story more carefully, but some of these things like the chickens and stuff were dealt partly through government procurement, i.e. Mm -hmm. procuring for the Afghan army. They started procuring Afghan. I'm gonna start buying Afghan uh, the Afghan, Afghan armies to buy Af so, chickens so, made in Afghanistan. So I think, you know, you gotta be careful and we, you know, okay. sort of manage creatively the import substitution strategy. Very quickly on the uh, economic development, because that's really important, I think. Uh, the human resources we already talked about, macroeconomic management. I think we, we sometimes forget they've had low inflation, they've had uh, good monetary policy, fiscal policy, and uh, the exchange rate has been managed reasonably well, and they have about uh, eight or nine months worth of imports of, of reserves, which many countries in the world don't have foreign exchange reserves. So they've, you know, that, that's, that's a necessary but far from sufficient uh, condition for for progress. The human resources mentioned just highlight, you know, for a long time, human capital is not going to be the strong point in Afghanistan. It's going to be, so it's going to be resource-based uh, development broadly considered, and that includes agriculture, right? That's the big area. It includes selected uh, areas where you have resource-based industries like cement, uh, the steel that uh, okay. Jeffrey mentioned, and there's because imports are so big, there's huge opportunities there. Uh, in terms of the programs, very simplistically and quickly, you have community-based uh, national solidarity programs, Citizens Charter. That's already a good platform for. You could ramp that up in a peace deal. You uh, could ramp it up, idea. right? 
I would not recommend ramping that up. I don't think they're scalable. I know they're in communities. They're doing very little in, in, in communities that have significant impact. Is it a vehicle? Yes, it should be part of stuff, but we should be looking at private sector companies building up private sector enterprises to help support those and not state-run or community-based only kind of programming, which is what the government was proposing in the bank paper they just submitted. So. Okay. Uh, oh, Dan, I know sorry, you're a big fan of doing areas, business. In urban areas, you need some job programs. I, I, I absolutely don't disagree on the private sector okay. part of it. In, in terms of which kind of development programs okay. you do in rural areas, I think that I know you're that a big supporter of the good. doing business indicators, yeah. and I was just told by the minister that they're going to be going back this year, not forward again. Mm. So they made a couple of years of progress, but this year the, the it'll back. be a tough result. They're going to be falling back. Okay. But who should be summer. surprised having an election, a right. sensitive peace process, uncertainty about U.S. policy all at once? Okay. I mean, you know. Look, we're, we're running out of time. I want to call on Michael Levitt and Alex Kravitz. I've only got time for two more. So Uncle Michael and, and Alex Kravitz. He's, he's like my uncle. So he is. He's right. There he is. If he tells me to do something, I, take, I, I always say yes. So The drinks. Do the drinks. Yes, do the drinks. I know. <laughs> um, Open bar. And I also don't think you have to worry about 200,000 Afghans coming into the United States as refugees will shoot them first. So oh, don't worry geez. about it. The, yes, we don't let people in. It's okay. Um, the, I, I'm confused. I, seriously. I'm, so 10% support the, the, the Taliban. 90% don't support the government. Right? I mean, no, it's it's closer to about where is 55. Every, where 60%. is everybody? Uh, let me. Where is everybody else? And this is getting better. I came in much more pro, do more, but what what are we going to do? The, we're going to send troops in to support the private sector because they have to be protected if they're going to do mining. How? Are we going to be there? Is the U.S. or somebody going to be there forever? Because the Afghan military may be getting better, but I don't think anybody thinks if the U.S. and everybody else walked out tomorrow, the Taliban wouldn't at least get a draw out of the entire country. So things are getting better, but how long? How much? How many? I mean, some sense of the future because we don't have, even the U.S. doesn't have unlimited resources. We're spending less on development than we used to. We're going to focus defense more than we used to. So is this the prime area that we ought to be doing it and not doing 12 other countries? And how much, how long, who gets it? Okay. Okay, Alex Kravetz. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's the, the, the Iraq Alumni Association here, yes. Exactly. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Dan. I, um, I'm Alexander Kravitz. I'm a former diplomat and, I guess, development worker as well. I, I found Bill's uh, comments just, just very quickly. Uh, first, I think Mr. Bulgheroni, whose name is on, on these walls and who had promoted a, a pipeline back in the 90s negotiating with, a, with, a, with the... Uh, Taliban would be pleased to have heard your reference to, the, to Tapi. And your comment about post-conflict conflict made me think about actually El Salvador and Guatemala, where it's a different kind of conflict, but the reality is that there's conflict after. 
My question actually goes to, I'm afraid, Annie, not to put her on the hot seat, but since you're retired. From press reports, and, and Jeffrey also, because I'd like to get uh, his uh, take on, on, on what's the reaction been in, in Afghanistan. From press reports, the negotiations that have been scuttled uh, were taking place between the US and the Taliban, as we know. And I read some press report where actually uh, the envoy had uh, met President Ghani, showed him the uh, text of the agreement, allowed him to read it, and then the US took it back. To me, it's inconceivable to have thought that in the negotiations, for example, in the El Salvador peace uh, negotiations where some of you served, or in Colombia, where the US, or whether, rather where the governments were worked hand in hand with their US allies, that something like this could have happened. So I'm wondering, what does, if you might care to enlighten us, to comment, you know, how should we see it? How do you think the Afghans see it, the Afghan government? And what does that tell the private sector, for example, that is supposed to invest you know, in, in the future, I mean, in terms of the reliability of, of the United States mm -hmm. as a partner? Thank you. Okay, thanks for that. No, no softball there. Yeah, softball, yeah. all right, so, so, but I think it's a fair question. Okay, so, so either one, you can, each of you can take either one of those questions, but Annie, why not, since the question was directed sure. to you, why don't we start with that? Sure. Um, the framework that was discussed was a framework of the United States and a conditions-based withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. This is not the same. I mean, this has been said over and over again, and I'm quoting really Laurel Miller and others. If the United States wants to withdraw from Afghanistan, we don't actually even need an agreement to do so. This is our right. So uh, the agreement that is being discussed with the Taliban is being done in order to leverage something that we've been trying to get for a long time, which is to get the Taliban to sit down with the Afghan government. We have the Afghan government's interest very much in mind. Uh, if it were possible to order the Taliban to show up to a peace negotiation with the Afghan government, we would have done that. And when I say we, I mean my former we, but the US government has been at this for a very long time, including a lot of the officials in this room. So I don't think that it is the same as saying that we're not working with the Afghan government to say that the first step of a very long process was to sit down with the Taliban because that was the only avenue that was available. Um, I do think that uh, over time, the Afghan government also needs to be really careful about how much political mileage is being made out of how angry they are with the US because the other option may not be a better peace agreement. The other option may be what a very good percentage of Americans want, which is simply to leave. A kind of a crashing out option. So if this is what you're worried about, and I think it's fair to be worried about that, then the constructive approach that Ambassador Khalilazad has taken so far should be given a great deal of respect. Okay. So um, I'll start with Michael's on the security. So um, 
the Afghan business leaders believe that it, through investments in mining and energy that they have the ability to secure their energy platforms and their mining platforms, but where they need assistance is on the third ring. The inside ring is their, their security companies protecting their assets, staffed with some Gurkhas, frankly, as leadership and others. A second ring that would be the APPF ring, the Afghan Public Protection Force ring, which has been getting bad press in many years ago, but has improved and is getting a little bit better. Not all over the country, but around energy, major infrastructure, mm -hmm. they're on it. And uh, they seem to have been able to keep several attacks from happening. So that third ring is the issue. They believe that they could use support from NATO and U.S. support electronically, visually, surveillance, uh, to help them to make sure that there's no major surprise attack on their infrastructure. That's an issue that they think should be fairly easily resolvable. Unfortunately, two years ago, CENTCOM changed the rules now, and they're not allowed to assist in any infrastructure support or protection. And uh, one last thing, USGS. They've, they've been trying to go out and do resource assessments, some core samples, simple things to go to an area to validate the investment that private investors, U.S. included, have made to invest in the mines. They, for two and a half years, have been told that they cannot have any security support from the U.S. to go out, and thus they're not allowed to put their expats in the field to do that engineering test and those things, which is holding up the entire mining industry because they were looking, Afghans were looking to USGS to spearhead those investments in the mining by doing that analysis up front and training the Afghan Geological Service to replace them eventually. So the whole process is backed up because one security solution cannot be effectuated by our military working in cooperation with the Afghans. To me, that's an easy fix if there's a leader in place to try to do that. On the peace agreement, so the way we've looked at it and the Afghan business guys have looked at it, Zal has been trying to negotiate not a peace agreement, he's trying to negotiate a security framework that would lead to a, eventually to a peace agreement. They're two separate components, I, I believe we think, that, they, that they've been trying to do. Without getting into all the politics of it, I think they felt that if the, the security component could get resolved, it would satisfy political requirements back here in the United States and would allow the intra-Afghan dialogue to happen in a more programmatic and planned way with other parts of society joining into that. Since the security framework agreement fell out, the peace agreement thing has fallen out and the elections are going to go forward because frankly the president has better numbers than any of his opponents and he wants to move forward with an election now because in three months if the bombings continue who knows what support level that they would have so i think you know from a pragmatic perspective our business guys think there's nothing they can do anyways so they're going to continue to figure out how to do their business and keep building assets and building energy and, and getting electricity moving and uh, they'll deal with security i mean uh, gazanfar group uh, their chairman whose company's been in afghanistan for 110 years said you know, we've been here before the Taliban, we're here after the Taliban, we will continue to work to grow our country in spite of all these things that are thrown at us, and we'll figure out ways for us to do that. Okay, Annie, you want to just, make a Just to clarify, it's yeah. a legislative uh, prohibition on the... U.S. legislative. U.S. legislative prohibition on DOD uh, providing the security. And yeah. there is the attempt with uh, AID funding to let USGS run numbers on, you know, on 60-year-old, I mean, very old, and a lot of data that they didn't 
yet have available for commercial so purposes. we now have in Afghanistan uh, two main geological companies that are equal in experience and have done a lot of work regionally in this they could have undertaken this asset uh, uh, and core sampling uh, years ago to do that and not required any legislative change Crazy. but as former head of legislative affairs for USAID I can tell you that that would have been simply a phone call uh, between the administrator and the secretary in, in Capitol Hill to try to get that done if it was important to getting the mines open and getting people employed and getting stabilization in Afghanistan secured somebody had to take the lead to try to do that and it didn't happen yeah Holly can uh, so I just want to broaden this out again and and to the comment of well who who do people support in Afghanistan well what they support and what they want overall is peace right and so and if we left, to Annie's point, if we left without a plan, it would be so much worse. There would be civil conflict again, and the results of that would be horrendous. And so we need to keep that in mind, even as we see frustration here in the United States um, at how long we've been over there and frustration by the Afghan people. Good. Bill? Yeah, one, one point just on these negotiations, which I think is important. I mean, Again, putting the sensitive peace negotiations at the same time as during an election campaign puts the Afghan government yeah. at a severe Terrible. disadvantage yeah. because basically the non-Taliban side is fighting an election and, and while at the same time are, are trying to get involved in the peace process. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're in a weaker position than the Taliban, which is more unified. And, um, uh, my feeling about the intra-Afghan dialogue is the, is the non-Taliban forces will be in a weaker position, not because they are inherently or in terms of their popularity with the people, but because they're divided among themselves. Just quickly, I think the question, how much, how long, and who gets it, that's a, a really great question. And it, it made me reflect on a few things. One, there are very few, if any, maybe South Korea, a few examples of this kind of sustained, and it was, it's not only US, but remember, it was a Security Council mandate in the aftermath of 9-11. The international community was probably more unified on Afghanistan than on almost any other subjects, certainly not compared to Iraq, for example. And I, I'm actually amazed at how long this has held up. And if, if, uh, if somebody had told me in 2002 that in 2019, uh, the U.S. and other countries would be contributing something like eight or nine billion a year just to the Afghan security and civilian aid, not speaking the cost of the international forces, I, I would have said, no, are you kidding? And so, you know, the question becomes, and then now later, due to this blow up of the talks, right, this was, I think, the best chance of actually bringing the worst of the war to an end, and it, and, and we managed to screw that up too, right? So, so now it's going to keep going. So the question is, who is going to pull the plug uh, if the current administration didn't, right? So right now, at least, we don't know. But the, so the interesting thing is, this has lasted for a long time. And I remember several big international donor meetings where each one, they were saying, well, this is going to be the last of them. Okay. And now they're talking about another meeting in 2020 to sort out the mm -hmm. aid issues and all that, which are very important. So. You know, I, I, I used to be skeptical about how long the commitment would last. Maybe it is finally running out, but past experience, I mean, it's lasted quite a lot longer than any of us would have expected at the beginning. I think we need to end it there. Please join me in thanking the panel.
Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.